So one thing I want to say and I want to give a plug to is that uh, Bourbon Pursuit, uh, the number one uh, bourbon podcast on iTunes, are here tonight. They're recording this uh, conversation and it will form part of uh, an episode of the podcast that will be released in January 2018. So that's Bourbon Pursuit. You guys should all check it out. Uh, it's with Kenny Coleman. He's up the back there having a great time. Hey everyone, this episode is a fun mix of economics and seeking employment in the bourbon industry. I have to say thanks to the John H. Shatner Center at the University of Louisville Business School for allowing us to come and record this podcast. And I appreciate Connor James Lennon for moderating and asking some good questions along the way. It goes without saying that if you're putting on a bourbon event in or near Louisville where you'd like to share that information with thousands of listeners, please reach out to the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O, at bourbonpursuit.com. The only thing we hate to see is awesome information being shared and then lost on a room of only a few people, when that can get in front of so many. So take advantage and let us record. As always, thank you to our loyal Patreon supporters. We appreciate you putting forth your monthly donation to keep this podcast afloat. Visit patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit, P-A-T, R-E-O-N.com slash Burn Pursuit to help support this show and get cool stuff. Also, if you're just an audio listener and maybe you're not aware, but we also have all of our video podcasts. They're available on Facebook and YouTube. So you can go make sure you catch those videos too. With that, enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. So, today we're fortunate to have a team over to discuss the bourbon movement in Kentucky. The bourbon industry has a long historical roots here in Kentucky. It is a topic for both Connor Lennon and I, uh, and Connor's a moderator today, we've been doing some research on. 
So Connor is in his second year as an assistant professor in the economics department. And I'm going to let Connor introduce the panelists and start the program. At the end, there will be questions for students to ask. And for questions, not for soliloquies or any long talking. Just ask the questions. Anyhow, enjoy the show. Thanks, Steve. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out. It turns out that bourbon is a popular topic. Who would have, who would have guessed? Um, so one thing I want to say and I want to give a plug to is that uh, Bourbon Pursuit, uh, the number one uh, bourbon podcast on iTunes, are here tonight. They're recording this uh, conversation, and it will form part of uh, an episode of the podcast that will be released in January 2018. So that's Bourbon Pursuit. You guys should all check it out. Uh, it's with Kenny Coleman. He's up the back there having a great time. Uh, <laughs> so as, as Steve Coleman just said, uh, today's panel discussion is, is titled Kentucky's Bourbon Boom. And we're here today to try to understand why bourbon has made such a huge comeback in recent years. Why has it made a comeback today? Why now? How long might this boom last? How important has the boom been for Kentucky's economy? And how U of L students can make their mark in the industry. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> uh, so to help us in that task, we've got four outstanding panelists. Uh, each is an expert on the bourbon industry in a unique way. Next to me, I've got Michael Veach. Mike is a UofL alum. He's got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history from UofL. Until recently, he was the uh, Filson Historical Society's official bourbon historian. He is the author of Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. Mike was inducted into the Kentucky Distillers Association Hall of Fame in 2006 and now spends his time as a full-time bourbon writer and consultant. Next to Mike, we've got Bill Samuels Jr. He almost needs no introduction. He has been called a maverick, a giant in the distillery business, a marketing genius, a visionary, and the best friend the Kentucky bourbon industry has ever had. Bill grew up next door to and was the godson of Jim Beam. He also worked as a chauffeur for, uh, for Colonel, Colonel Sanders. Uh, I don't even have time to talk about his career as a rocket scientist. True story. Bill is the Chairman Emeritus of Maker's Mark. He is a three-time Kentucky Entrepreneur of the Year. He was an inaugural member of the Kentucky Distillers Association Hall of Fame. And this year, he received the prestigious Parker Beam Lifetime Achievement Award. That's quite the resume. They do that for old people. <laughs> uh, next to Bill, we've got Susan Riegler. Susan, Susan started writing about bourbon as the restaurant critic and beverage columnist for the Courier-Journal long before bourbon was actually cool. She is the author of four books, including Kentucky Bourbon Country, The Essential Travel Guide, and The Bourbon Tasting Notebook, which she co-authored with, with Michael. Uh, she currently serves as the president of the Bourbon Women Association, which this year welcomed 150 members from 17 different states for its fourth annual symposium That's conference. Cool. Uh, <laughs> finally, Last but not least, we've got Reed Mittenbuehler, who is an Indianapolis native and a journalist whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Slate, Whiskey Advocate, and many other outlets. Reed holds a master's in American studies from Georgetown University and is the author of the critically acclaimed Bourbon Empire. Most importantly, Reed holds a degree in economics from Indiana University. He, nobody's perfect, okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there we go. Uh, a warm welcome to everybody here. Uh, thank you. So 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to ask you questions mainly as a group, but sometimes I'll direct a specific question at just one of you. To kick off, I'd really like to help our audience, and particularly students, to appreciate the size and the scope of the recent bourbon boom. With that in mind, I'd like to ask you, all of you, your opinion on why we're experiencing this bourbon renaissance and why now. So whoever wants to take it away can. Bill. As the oldest, you do that before. I, I, I'm ill as well as being old. And he said uh, three minutes. So I thought I would take some time and jot some thoughts down. Uh, Kentucky's bourbon boom, it, uh, it hasn't always been a boom. Okay, it may seem that way, but it hasn't. This year we have approximately 1,600 licensed and operating distilleries all around the U.S. with another five to 700 licensed and scheduled to go online either next year or the year after, depending on when they can secure barrels and distilling equipment. Uh, most of these operations began less than four years ago. Between 1945 and 1995, a period of 50 years, there were only two bourbon distillery startups in the country. One in Pennsylvania, which did not make it. The other, Maker's Mark, created by my father in 1953 as his retirement hobby. And it has been some sort of retirement hobby. <laughs> I was there when he bought the little place for $35,000 and had pretty much been hanging around ever since. Dad simply stated goal, and he did. Every chance he got around anybody that would listen, he made it perfectly clear that the goal of this little hobby was to bring connoisseurship to Kentucky bourbon. He toiled on confidently without many paying attention for many, many years, but in fact, it was not until the mid-'80s when a couple of distillers helped get this concept on the radar screen, and it was Buffalo Trace, which then had another name, introduced the first single barrel bourbon, Blanton's, and Jim Beam's grandson, Booker, a short time later introduced the small batch bourbon collection. It is the foresight and the actions of these three pioneers who re-imaged bourbon that in my judgment made it possible for the Kentucky spirit to share in a big way America's ongoing love affair with finely crafted and well-positioned premium spirits. As the producer of 90 plus percent of the world's bourbon, the boom has really been felt in an economic way here in Kentucky, in jobs, capital investment, and amount of bourbon produced. Uh, since 2000, each of those has tripled I, for one, expect continued growth for Kentucky's strong, financially strong bourbon producers and their stronger brands, but possibly at a slightly reduced growth rate. Exciting career opportunities abound for each and every one of you that is, is looking to get into an exciting industry at home. We haven't had many over the, the centuries. We got one now. Uh, now we do face a strong challenge from each of the 11 states that have more distilleries that we do here in Kentucky. We have state laws that have encouraged startups not to think about Kentucky 
And remember, these startups, we were a startup once. For 50 years, the first 50 years of our existence, we were qualified as a craft distiller. First 50 years. It's just been the last 13 that we have reached beyond the 400,000 cases. So this, this is a transitional thing. The more of these craft distillers we get in, the more of that investment, the more likely you'll have companies like Brown Foreman, like us, and others. So uh, it looks good, guys. Thank you. Okay, good. Thanks uh, Thanks for sort of putting things in context. But, but well, does everyone agree? Does, is is I, it the I, foresight of three visionaries? Who, I, I who gave agree us this? with him there, but I will also have to say that this bourbon boom looks bigger than it really should if you take it into context that in the 40s and 50s, I mean, we're just now catching up to the production levels where we were in the 40s and 50s. But the margins are 10 times higher. But the margins are 10 times higher. So... Uh, That's important. Yeah, that is important. This is one of those economic uh, right. bits that they're going to But, yeah. you know, Kentucky had a booming industry up through the 50s, and then, uh, you know, one of the mistakes in my book that Bill pointed out to me is, is I... I kind of said that uh, uh, the 50s were a golden age of bourbon because there were a lot of brands out there and everybody could get what they wanted. But it wasn't a golden age for the actual producers because uh, companies like Shen Li had overproduced and they kept the price artificially low and uh, ran a lot of uh, small distilleries out of business by doing so. And it kind of started the downfall and the decrease. And, you know, you had two decades, basically, of decreasing sales that makes this present boom look so much bigger than it would be if we'd have had straight sales all along. I wanted to also mention that, and this goes back to Maker's Mark, there are two factors that have really made bourbon take off in the last decade, decade and a half. One of those is the positioning that Maker's did uh, and this is back to your wonderful Doe yeah. Anderson agency of, I remember the tagline from the 80s, it tastes expensive and is. That is, the bourbon, instead of being just, you knock back your fire water, right, or, you know, down the shot, this was a connoisseur's uh, sipping yeah. whiskey. This was something to compete with the single malt scotches. And single malt was a big marketing wheeze on the part of the Scots <laughs> in the 1970s and, and the 80s. So... Makers was a pioneer in that respect. And then the other aspect of this was emphasizing the history, the authenticity, the place, and turning Kentucky into a destination, Makers being the first place to be open to the public, the first distillery as a tourism site. Come see how it's made, come look at this beautiful setting. And the other distillers all followed with that. And now we've had over a million people last year visiting the major Kentucky distillery. Susan, let me tell everybody why we started. It didn't have anything to do with, with we had all these people wanting to come see us. It's my sister had gotten fired as, as the ground hostess at the airport for American Airlines and needed a job. And all she could do was talk. Uh -huh. And she did a great job. So it's a family job. tradition. Yeah. It worked out well. You know, I would add one thing to Susan. You know, when we're looking for reasons for this bourbon renaissance, which I kind of like to call it in a way, because it used to be this huge industry, and we see a crater for several decades at the end of the 20th century. Think back to what a hip bar would have looked like in the 80s or the 90s. You think a lot of chrome and steel, white tile, it's very sterile. 
ferns. What are, <laughs> what are people drinking in that bar? You know, they turn to vodka. They're drinking clear spirits. You know, and the rules of fashion kind of dictate this industry more than, than people talk about it. You know, hemlines go up, they go down. You know, lapels get wide, they get skinny again. And you had a generation of Americans that had turned away from this drink that a lot of Americans had historically drank a lot of. And when you look at a hip bar today, over the last few years, what do you see? You see a lot of reclaimed wood. You see Edison light bulbs. You see a lot of kind of old stuff. It looks, um, you know, it's very comfortable. It looks like a cabin in a lot of ways. Like I live in New York in these bars, you know, they're in the middle of the city. It's very urban and you go in and it's like you're in a barn all of a sudden. That's how they all look. And I think bourbon, the history of it and the heritage of it, it goes back to the past. There's a lot of nostalgia involved. And so, you know, in the, coinciding with the, the bourbon renaissance, you've got a lot of um, forces that have kind of disturbed the fabric you know, politically, economically, culturally. You know, a lot of people are going online and people are staring at tiny screens instead of, you know, talking to each other face to face and this kind of stuff. And when you look at bourbon, it's a product that harkens back to the past and there's something very comfortable about it. And so I think people have turned to it in a lot of ways too. It's kind of, it's a comforting thing. It's an old thing and it's kind of settling things down a little bit. It's relaxing. Mm. And I think that that is part of it. You know, that's why people have kind of latched back on. They've forgotten about it for a while. We went off to vodka and all the crazy fern bars and now we're back. I think that's, that's part of the renaissance too. Yeah, I wish we had part some of the reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let me add a little bit to, to Bill's uh, comments on, on sort of what's going on in the industry. I've got some notes here. Um, the Kentucky Distillers Association reported just recently that over $1.2 billion of investment is underway uh, just in Kentucky. Just last week, Stoli Vodka, I won't even try and pronounce the, the full name, Stoli Vodka announced plans for a $150 million state-of-the-art distillery and visitor experience in Bardstown centered around the Kentucky Owl brand. This will be the third new distillery in Bardstown alone in the last three years, after the construction of Bardstown Bourbon Company, which just announced a second expansion plan, and Luxrow, which is still under construction. In Louisville, uh, Brown Foreman will soon, hopefully, get to cut the ribbon on their $50 million Old Forester distillery on Whiskey Row. They will be joined shortly afterwards by Michter's. In addition, Heaven Hill just announced a $25 million investment at its Bernheim distillery in West, West Louisville. And these investments follow the openings of Peerless Distilling, Angel's Envy, Rabbit Hole, and Copper and Kings in recent years. In what ways do you guys see these investments as important for Kentucky and its economy in terms of jobs, tourism, or economic growth and development? And why are we seeing these things now? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Kentucky is really being rebranded as kind of the Napa Valley of bourbon. And uh, you need to have these smaller distilleries. Like Bill said, every distillery was a startup at one point. And we need to have these startup distilleries come in here and uh, build to help have things for people to see when they come in. You know, if we're <laughs> going to be the Napa Valley, we need to have the distilleries for people to see. And I think we're seeing more and more of it happening. You're seeing, you know, distilleries have returned to Lexington, you know, uh, something that they were out of Lexington for what, 70 years or so. Um, 
Um, we also need the hotels, the restaurants, and the other attractions that people are going to want to have when they come here because they're right. not just going to be drinking bourbon all day for seven days. Right. <laughs> I mean, some of them might, but <laughs> still, um, you know, if, if you're having that complete tourism experience, uh, there also have to be the other attractions. And I think some of the other attractions, like the, the horse park and our museums and just basically being out in beautiful countryside is another part of that experience. But there are going to be opportunities if Bardstown wants to boom with tourism. They're going to need to build some more infrastructure for that. Uh, much of the experience is now being driven uh, by the legacy distilleries. Yes. And I'll, it's yeah. all the other stuff's nice. It's just hard for communities to figure it out until somebody shows them how to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just take our place. Uh, my son, who's running the place now, is absolutely committed that we will have the first Michelin star restaurant in the state of Kentucky. Love it. It's, he's, he's, he's got the resources to do it. He's in the process of, of doing feasibility for a $14 million inn at the distillery. We currently have Dale Chihuly's exhibit, the first time Chihuly's ever had an exhibit in the state of Kentucky. And, and we bring in, in chefs and multiply that by 10 and you've got a lot of content for people from out of state. But the other thing you've got is you've got a lot of job opportunities that aren't just hooked to making whiskey. It's a true story. Uh, connected to this, Reed, one, one of the, the big sort of uh, themes in your book is, is sort of the marketing strategies of both, both old and new bourbon brands. Um, but, but some of these brands that I just talked about, the investments, they're, they're potentially using this sort of cynical method of, of bringing back old, dead, you know, names from, from, from sort of the past. Uh, do you see this as sort of a clever, clever <coughs> marketing ploy or just a cynical oh, sort I don't, of marketing ploy? I, I don't think it's cynical at all. I mean, so you've got these brands, storied old historic brands. Pepper would be a perfect example. We're just talking about Lexington that were very big in their day. And then the industry contracted. Um, and a lot of them just were shuttered. Either they were bought up by other companies that shut them down, or the market, yeah, people just weren't buying this product. These are very good brands, people really liked them. Um, I, I know the gentleman who's actually resurrected that brand, James Pepper, and it really comes from, you know, this is a cool brand, there was a lot here. It's more like resurrecting an old legacy, and a lot of these companies are pretty honest about them. They're like, look, this was the thing that was just a copyright after, after a while, it was just a trademark that was sitting in a drawer. We bought it. And we're bringing it back, and they're presenting it that way. And in a lot of cases, like, look, there's been a gap. You know, what we put in the bottle now is totally different. But so, and I can see why people sometimes get cynical. Well, it's like, well, it's not really, you know, you don't actually have the legacy. Legacy is very important in this industry. You find like these companies talking of the heritage, and it goes back to my however many great grandfather. And a lot of people kind of bristle when they don't see it as an actual continued line of succession. But for the most part, it's a, it's a good thing, and it's kind of nice to see a one-story brand that went away kind of brought back and restored. You see it like a, a you know, yeah, seeing an old friend again. Yeah, you know, and it's like they've got these beautiful labels. If you look at bourbon labels from the 1800s, it's some of the most beautiful marketing of any product. Look, look at old labels. It's, it's amazing. So... It's nice to see classical labels. Even the earliest labels that I've seen, uh, the Filson has a, uh, a scrapbook from the 1850s 
of, bur- of labels from a lithograph company, and there's bourbon and rye and other, you know, types of spirits labels in there, and they're just, uh, they're a work of art. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as a, as a mere consumer of bourbon myself, uh, these investments to me and to consumers generally seem to be welcome. Uh, the increased demand for, for bourbon has, for me, led to difficulties in finding my favorite brands on the shelves. Uh, given that we're in the middle of sort of fall release season, let's, let's pivot a little bit to the effect that the boom has had on sort of the availability of products. And particularly, you know, seeing as it's maybe <laughs> not something you want to talk about, but, but uh, something that everybody else wants to talk about. Uh, let's think about the boutique brands from, say, the big distillers, right? So in particular, um, you know, let's ask Susan. Susan, uh, as, as head of, sort of the Bourbon Women Association, how have, say, the members of the Bourbon Women Association coped with the surging popularity and lack of availability of their favorite products? Probably like everybody else <laughs> who is a bourbon lover. You don't have any secret tricks? There, there, there are no secret tricks. Well, there, there is a trick. It's not secret. Uh, what you do is you cultivate a deep and personal relationship with your local liquor store is what you do. You know, <laughs> become, exactly a, become a regular. Exactly right. you know, do yeah. not feel you can go online and, or send out an Instagram message and say, hey, do you have any <laughs> antique collection releases that I can just stop by and pick up? No, become a regular in your local neighborhood retailer stop, know, shop, know that they know that you are an appreciator of bourbon and it's amazing. You may stumble onto, I've heard many, many of these stories that somebody walks in their store and the owner knows them, the proprietor knows them and says, oh, I had a customer who didn't pick up his bottle of, believe it or not, this happens, his bottle of 23-year-old, you know what, would you like to have it because you're one of our regulars? And then they say, oh, yes, of course. That's, that's the thing. If you are in with the person where if you regularly shop in a place, they know your name, they know your face, they know you're serious, then you're gonna find some of these rare things. I actually managed, uh, this is gonna sound like I spent all of my time trolling in liquor stores, but, uh, (laughs) which, well, a fair amount, but I'm a professional. Um, It's okay, But somehow I just managed to get, oh, have you, do you have the Old Forester birthday bourbon yet this year? Oh, no, I don't. Someone didn't pick it up? Oh, fine, I'll take it. And, you know, <laughs> that happens. So, so you basically you have, it's a sort of mindfulness and being in the right place at the right time. I also had a great tip from my friend Mike Veach about some bourbon I was looking for. He said, yeah, this is up in a little liquor store up 10th Street in Jeffersonville. And I walked in and, whoo, five bottles, boom, it was great. Can't find it all in Louisville. I'm not telling you where or what it was. <laughs> you know, the, the industry probably hates me for what I do. Because when, when, when people start looking for these boutique things, I tell them, why bother? There are a lot of really good brands that you can get that are available out there that are half the price and you can get those and enjoy them year-round, you know, Absolutely. Uh, Maker's Mark. Absolutely, but when you, you know. do bourbon tastings for people and they want something special, you sort of have to be on the problem. I think for an enterprising student who wanted to scrape together the data, <laughs> you know, bourbon right now could offer some really interesting lessons, you know, in bubble economy, you know, it's like tulip bulbs a little bit. When people talk about shortages of certain brands that have just disappeared, brands that once used to be easy to find everywhere. You know, now you can't find them, or if you do, they're, they're really expensive. I sometimes wonder, you know, there's not really necessarily a shortage. You know, like, it's just not there as much as it's 
hoard it away in a closet <laughs> or in someone's basement. You know, you hear stories. I've, I've got a number of liquor store friend, friend owners um, who have these stories about people coming in and buying everything off the shelf, buying the case. You know, people are afraid they're not going to be able to get it. And you've got that kind of mentality right now. And so you'll see these things. And it, because of distribution, you'll see certain markets totally empty of a certain brand, but other markets will have it. Um, I think after a while, hopefully that'll kind of start evening out just as people realize I've got a whole closet full of liquor that, you know, the price hasn't skyrocketed or whatever I thought it was going to do in secondary market. Don't you find a lot of that really is driven by people uh, buying to sell as mm -hmm. opposed well, okay, well, that's Some a totally that. different market and that bubble and is illegal. huge. And illegal. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of the charm. Yeah, right. <laughs> Please note the Reed Mitten dealer is not a lawyer, it's not legal advice. <laughs> You know, it's like uh, uh, Rosemary was calling it the other day. It's the Beanie ba Baby suit. Right. You know, right. people's got to have that one bottle of everything out there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it seems for Susan that Pappy Van Winkle has become the he who, ha who shall not be named kind well, of. Well, no, not necessarily. You know? And that's, that's actually, I would completely agree with Mike um, in that there are a lot of bourbons that are very, very good. Um, that you, you look at what the distillers make, and they're basically using the same mash bill and some, for a variety of brands. Some of them, they age longer. Some of them are in different places in the warehouse. But, you know, they're, the, big, the big players, they all make really, really excellent bourbons. And if you just are a bourbon lover, there's a lot of excellent and very reasonably priced bourbon on the market. There is no shortage in that respect. Have, you, have any of you had to, say, adjust your, your preferences, adjust your tastes to deal with sort of shortages? Have you, have you had to pick something else you like? You, you know, I used to have kind of as my special Friday night, but I would buy it for $40 a bottle with the Van Winkle Lot B, you know, the 12 which is now impossible to find. But <laughs> I also am not personally a, a huge fan of really old, very woody bourbons. And the sweet spot six or seven years old, which to me, which kind of gets back to how I, how I kind of recalibrate is, you know, at its, at it, you know, the soul of bourbon, it's kind of a humble product. And it's corn, rye, barley, wheat. Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally wheat. You know, aged in a barrel, it's not necessarily a fancy thing. And, and, you know, it's like cooking meat. Some meat is made to be braised for hours on end. Um, you know, some of it you want to eat raw, like steak tartare. And bourbon, it's more like the pork chop, right? You just, you don't want it too overcooked, you don't want it undercooked, you know, six, seven, eight years old, that's not a, an inherently complicated product. And so when you see this fetishization or everything's getting very complicated, the way people, you know, kind of go after these unicorn brands, I always kind of think, well, it's, you know, I'm not trying to glorify tacos or peanut butter and jelly, saying, you know, it's kind of a, it's a standard. So some of these standard kind of old classic brands, that aren't that expensive really do hit a sweet spot, I think. So I think of it that way. There, there's a few of us that actually make bourbon, which is different <laughs> from marketing bourbon, <laughs> that are well aware that people generally, if not influenced overly by the marketers, enjoy stuff that tastes good. <laughs> and old whiskey doesn't taste good unless you filter it to death. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, so I'm going to pivot again in a little bit. Uh, 
He's an Irishman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure am. Uh, so, you know, I know very little about bourbon. Um, but I'm learning. Uh, so, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the protections that bourbon receives, um, particularly within the United States and outside uh, the United States. So, you know, how important to this boom has been the sort of international markets, the, the surging popularity of bourbon in other countries? And how important is the protection, the designated product protection that it received in 1964? How important is that to the, to the product and to the industry? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. You know, how important to this boom has been the sort of international markets, the, the surging popularity of bourbon in other countries, and how important is the protection, the designated product protection that it received in 1964, how important is that to the, to the product and to the industry? Boy, you know, if you take, take this as an American product, and it's, you know, a signature American product, just as you have champagne out of France, yep. right? Uh, then there's a lot of identity that goes with that. And we're not just exporting whiskey, supporting or exporting, you know, something that's very strongly identified as American. And uh, I, I remember when uh, I, I was a graduate student in England 40 years ago, and I remember going to a little gathering with a, a Canadian friend of mine. and. Somebody came up, some Brit came up to us and said, oh, you know, she said, well, I'm, my Canadian friend said, well, I'm from Toronto. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm from Kentucky. He said, oh, America, that's so much more romantic than Canada. And I thought, oh, that's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Hadn't really thought of it that way before. But there is that certain sort of romance when you talk about Kentucky and bourbon and horses and the frontier, you know, sort of all of that stuff. And then you sort of look at where the... Um, bourbon industry and the American whiskey industry where a lot of their growth comes from. And when you think about, um, I think 
One statistic I happen to know is that 65% of Jack Daniels is sold overseas. You know, that's, that's a huge market, which in Jack Daniels, of course, is owned by Louisville-based Brown Foreman, that the companies look to export. In Vietnam, which has been a, a huge growth industry for American whiskey, they have a 45% um, import tax on whiskey under the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement that was going to eventually be phased out. But the United States has not signed on to the TTP. And so what's that going to do with projected growth for exports in a market that was, I think, 175% growth between 2015 and 2016, one country alone in Asia? So you sort of have to think, you know, a big, big player for, for us, for us as in American whiskey companies uh, and people who are um, supporters of that, is that you have to grow your markets and the markets are going to be global. And you know this very, very well, and so we have to look at the ramifications of that. And then, you know, jobs, if you're not growing, now we have some growth going on right now, as we've just talked about, you know, in $1.5 billion in investments in the next few years. But where is that going to go? I just want to bring up, you know, when I was a reporter at the Courier-Journal, uh, we had this, we were having big, big meetings in the uh, you know, right around 2000, it was really exciting. Gannett was spending, forgot how many millions of dollars, on a brand new state-of-the-art color printing press. <laughs> what are we going to do with all this great full-color newspaper we're going to have, right? This was, you know, within 18 months of this thing called the Internet. Completely <laughs> changed journalism. But Gannett was putting millions of dollars into state-of-the-art color printing presses. No. So there's a little cautionary note about You know, one of the ways to, to think about the opportunity really for each of y'all as opposed to us is bourbon is now positioned well enough to take on scotch globally. Mm. It, and see, that's what I meant by bringing connoisseurship to bourbon. It had to happen before we had a chance to become internationally successful as a group at the upper level. We represent 10% of the scotch business. The opportunity is incredible because we, uh, we're more attractive to young professionals. We have the positioning right. We got to get the duties under control. Uh, maybe Trump's a great negotiator, but I can promise you that 10 presidents before him weren't. And we were put at horrible disadvantages to going into these countries and getting any kind of of uh, tariff equality. Yeah, so that, that's actually a nice sort of connection to my follow-up question. I have uh, the question I have put here is: Is could politics derail this boom? And in particular, I'm talking about some of the the commentary that Susan gave to the Guardian newspaper in England uh, when European authorities this summer threatened punitive tariffs on bourbon and. Some of the commentary online that I saw seems to think that bourbon was singled out specifically because of its importance to uh, Kentucky's Mitch McConnell. That it was that it, you know, they were trying to hit him where it, where it hurts, right? Yeah, but, and, and obviously it's still a very tiny part of American exports you know, in the bigger picture. But I think the great example, and Fred Minnick had an article about this in the New York Times last summer, um, is when we tried when Americans wanted to put leverage on 
European trade, they targeted the rope for cheese industry. Well, that's a tiny little portion of, of exports there, but it very much affects a population of farmers, very local people whose entire livelihood depends upon that. So again, you might look at you know, bourbon or Tennessee whiskey as a small portion of American exports, but it's a big portion of the economy of small places like yeah. Kentucky. And that makes when you, you know, if you want to try and hit the, the leader of a particular political party, you know, and, and sort of undermine his voter base, you, right. you attack the, the product that they make, right? It's, and, huge, uh, it's huge leverage, you know, that, yeah. that you'd have internationally. Also, there's a story that I'd heard it at Heaven Hill. You know, Bill was talking about scotch, and when you think of the scotch industry kind of riding on the back of the British Empire as they're going all over the world, when you're in a bar internationally and you order a whiskey, historically that's always been scotch. And Americans had always made a lot of whiskey, but they'd also consumed a lot, hadn't exported that much. And folks at Heaven Hill, you know, mentioned they're like, you know, we can handle this increase in U.S. demand, but if one person in every bar internationally, just for the night, decided not, you know, to order a, an American whiskey specifically, not a scotch, every rack house in Kentucky would just, you know. If, yeah, and that international market is just like this huge, kind of like surging, you know, and it's just, it's like but a sponge. we've got a chance you know. to compete now. For yeah. years, uh, Mike was talking about all the bourbon we sold in the 70s. I promise you, the bourbon customer in the 70s didn't look a thing like y'all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but you also think of just quantities and the quantities of scotch because we, 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 we all got very excited when we reached that point where, oh, there was a, a bourbon barrel aging in Kentucky for each person who lived here. And then, oh boy, now there are more barrels of bourbon than people and horses put together in Kentucky, <laughs> which is pretty exciting. But there are eight barrels of scotch for every scot, okay? So we still have a little ways to go in the production line there. <laughs> but I didn't know that factoid. That's uh, I wonder what the statistic is for Irish whiskey for Irish people. Uh, well, it's down because you left Ireland. So. Yes, right. Touche, <laughs> uh, touche. <laughs> so, so Bill, some of this, so these international connections that the industry is beginning to sort of develop. Uh, one of the best examples is that Maker's Mark recently became a part of the Bean Suntory Group. Um, recently, in, in say three years ago, um, from your sort of insider point of view, was this simply a way for Bean Suntory to continue to sort of uh, meet the surging demand for bourbon, or or was there something that Bean Suntory thought that they could add to Maker's Mark's product or image or brand? Uh, and if so, how did they plan to do that? First, I'm retired when all this happened, so I don't know. You still much know. About I know it. you know. <laughs> the reason. For this, the Suntory people believe that bourbon is now properly positioned to take on scotch long term. And they have to get the distribution right. And that's, that's what that was all about. To take what 30 years ago was a highly successful Kentucky brand to today, which is a highly successful domestic brand in the United States, Maker's Mark, and only slowly are we being pulled into the international markets. They really wanted to get ready, what Susan was saying, uh, and on the other side of it, that's the reason that we average spending $50 million a year to build warehouses, to, 
two bills. To, and then our job is to do it and not screw the whiskey up at the same time. <laughs> so it's not, it's really not about selling. It's about getting ready to become an international brand because in their view, bourbon is ready for the big time. What are, what are the other and, panelists think? Well, for example, you know, I was in London last week and it had been the first time I'd been there since uh, the early 90s. And I was really quite taken aback as to see just how many bourbons were available in the pubs that I walked into. When I was there in the 90s, you know, there may have been one bourbon and Jack Daniels, which I don't consider a bourbon, but... It was uh, Jim Beam and Jack Daniels. Yeah. That's what you saw. Four, well, actually, it was Four Roses and Jack four Daniels roses. is what I was seeing. Four Roses on the continent yeah. in, in Jim Beam in England, yeah. Just a, sorry, I need a little interjection. I remember my hometown did a piece, the local newspaper, the first time the first bar had a bottle of Jim Beam. That <laughs> <laughs> gives you some sense of the size of the right. town that I'm from. The, the Yankees but, are coming. Yeah. Yankees but are when coming. I was there last week, just about every pub I went into had Knob Creek, uh, Woodford Reserve, Maker's Mark, and Bullock. That's of course, Diageo is a London-based. Yeah, and by Diageo is a London-based. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And also, it's about image too. In that, one of my favorite finds doing book research was an old. Uh, Jim Beam ad from I think it's the 50s or 60s and it was a gentleman wearing a tuxedo and coattails and wearing white gloves and he's holding a bottle of white label Jim Beam and that's how they were positioning it into a market and you realize you go into some of these places and people have no perception of this product you know, they don't think of it as you know you know the way that Americans in the 50s were like, oh, something we're drinking on the back of a pickup truck or you know whatever it was just like well we'll just change the image entirely. And I think there's a much bigger push behind that to kind of upbrand that image and, and, and sell it that way. And I've, I've talked to a couple of producers who said, you know, as long as Americans are seen as cool, and this is a cool product, there is that reflection too that is helping drive it. So they were a little worried about maintaining that image you overseas. Know, historically, uh, I have hanging on my wall a bar tray from I.W. Harper from the early 60s, and it's talking about, in the early 60s, Shinley, which was a very progressive company in a lot of ways, uh, they were trying to expand bourbon overseas, and I.W. Harper was being advertised as the first bourbon available in 70 countries <laughs> in the early 60s. So, you know, the United States has been trying to get into that international market and compete with Scotch for, you know, 50 years now. And they're but just they now, didn't have the cues right, right there. They didn't. It, it, it no. really is that simple. The image was wrong, irrespective of what the individual companies did. Right. The time is right now, and the opportunity right. has never been better. Right. But this is, I'll say, I was going to say, this is a, uh, the accumulation of 50 years of effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that so nicely, leads nicely into the next question that I've got, and uh, as from some of the conversation that I'm hearing, I mean, it seems like none of you expect this boom to, to end anytime soon, especially given the behavior of these major companies who, who really have a lot at stake in, the, in this game. They're, they're not making these decisions lightly, and That's Beam true. Suntory is one, uh, Stoli Vodka is another, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know. Can this boom last indefinitely? And, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, but more specifically, what opportunities are still out there for someone who's entrepreneurial? It, it, is there still room for a, 
another variety, another flavor profile, because in Reed's book, he talked about how that, that sort of flavor heterogeneity was lost over time, and it's only beginning to come back with these new craft distilleries, that, that variety of flavor. Is, is there still room for that, or is, is this all going to be eaten up by the, the big guys in the industry, this, this demand? Well, well, see, that, that, that's one of the things I kind of disagreed with Reed in his book on. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> because even, you know, even in the 90s, you could tell, taste the different brands, and they all had different flavor profiles. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't, you know, some just, you know, bourbon flavor, you know, one bourbon flavor. Uh, there was a lot of variety even then, but I will agree that the craft distilling industry is bringing back an even wider variety. Yeah, there was a, uh, so last weekend I did a, a panel and we cracked open the Dusty. And for those who don't know, can I you explain? An old bottle, it's something from, yeah, it's not made anymore, uh, 40s, 50s. It had a bottle of Old Crow and it had been made by National. So we tasted it. I remember tasting it. And sometimes people really glom after these, right? They become, you know, they're rare and it's hard to find. They don't make them anymore. And it wasn't particularly good. I mean, a lot of sulfur. We were, we were smelling it. We we're like, oh, this, this, this is, you know, this is, this is not a great, this is not a great whiskey. But it's old and it's, you know, it's kind of rare. So you remember when you think when we talk about the industry consolidating what we've lost? And we've lost some things that really aren't, quite frankly, that that big of a loss. <laughs> but when you look at you know, all these new players, you know, coming back online and just looking at kinds of flavor profiles that might have been, you know, lost as an industry consolidated because there's this subtext of the history of the, the industry going down to just a few companies um, that made a huge portion of the liquid. You know, it's nice to see that something will, will, will pop out of that. So there's, there's a lot of promise, too. Yeah, I agree with um, so that. And that's what I, I talk about in the book when I'm, you know, talking about things that have been been lost. There were a lot of companies that, you know, they couldn't compete and consumers, quite frankly, weren't asking for the product and weren't paying the very low prices that were being asked for it. So, you know, they got, they got shaken out and that was, that's just how it, how it happened. And now there is demand and so you've got these companies coming back and so it's, <coughs> there's demand for it. So it's, uh, for the entrepreneurs in the room, and I assume there's at least one that, that really wants to start up rather than work for somebody else. Uh, with this boom, there's a lot of opportunities that don't have anything to do with making whiskey, but in supporting the people that do. And my son's got a friend of his that decided an opportunity would be to to uh, get into the used barrel business. And I don't know the specifics of it, other than he had to find a source, and then he had to find customers and and all. And in five years, he's made a fortune. And there's, there's opportunities like that all around. And they are almost all in Kentucky because the concentration of this is here. So think about that as you're... There's also opportunities, I think, in education. As more people Absolutely. want to make it, and then a lot of people want to learn about it. There's an outfit here, Moonshine University. Yes, indeed. And, and they're I, fabulous. And, and there was this, this packet that they have where you can, you can smell um, different chemicals that... You are considered flaws, but it's a way you can learn about these products if you're making it yourself or if you're, you know, just tasting through bottles. And I learned a tremendous amount. And it was this new company that kind of sprung up. And there's that end of the, of the educational aspect. And then just a lot of consumers who are, quite frankly, a little bewildered. I mean, it's 
hard to know all the different brands, what they make, and where the labels lead. Um, so there's a big demand for that, a big appetite, and people are willing to pay a lot of money. Well, let's talk about marketing. You know, one of the things that really struck me in all of this is, you know, if you're going to continue the demand, you're going to continue people making bourbon an appealing product for people, you know, do not underestimate the power of marketing. And Brown Foreman last year spent 17% of its profits plowed back into their marketing. Now that tells you they're serious about keeping this demand moving along, to keep making bourbon attractive, to say this is why you want to drink our product, and I'm sure it's comparable with the other distilleries. You know, they pay big attention to that. When we started with the agency we've got now, uh, we paid them a dollar case, we were selling 100,000 cases, and today they have 40 people working on our account. <laughs> Back then, two. So Beam Summit Tory me have more than 17% of their profits going. Well, was, uh, was, <laughs> was a large portion of that 17% 17% spent on the, the Kingsman movie? Transformer? I don't know about that. Yeah, it wasn't broken down for me. Nobody's going to do a Halle Berry up here and drink a pint of whiskey while we're standing? <laughs> I, I talked about the Kingsman movie. This is a, another good example of international markets. So in South Korea, uh, the Kingsman movie, I think, was the number one biggest box office opening South Korea had ever seen. So if you're looking to get into the South Korean market and you're looking to, you know, create a product that is going to be bundled alongside this movie, um, that's a huge, a huge opportunity for them. It's thinking, I think, very smart about. For, for those who don't know, the, the movie was brought out with a, a, an old Forrester, Brown Foreman product yeah. expression called Statesman, which was tied into the movie, which is called Kingsman. And tied into its plot and everything. Yeah, yeah, so if the, you see the, the movie, movie, you're going to see this brand. And if South Korea really likes this movie and everyone in South Korea is going to go see it and then they see this brand and this is a market they're trying to break into, I thought it was pretty, pretty brilliant. Agreed. <laughs> 17% well spent. Is that the way and regular old Forester sells for $18 a bottle and right. Kingsman is, you know, $50 a bottle. Right. Mm, gosh, that's a pretty good profit margin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is that cynical? Is the is the move towards hey we've got the same thing? It's higher proof. Yeah, it seems still cynical, right? Is capitalism it's trying to get cynical? you to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's not go there. You, you, you know, the whole point is is that the distilleries have to make money or they go out of business. Yeah. Are any of them going out of business? In the past, yes. yeah, they sure did. At the, the moment, past, yeah. yeah. But not at the moment because they're not afraid to charge fifty dollars for a right, bottle. Right, right. Remember the printing press. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and I've had a couple of conversations with Old Forester about this, folks at Old Forester, where I've said, you know, this is a brand that historically, because it's been around forever, historically was you know pretty normal. It was normally price. It wasn't particularly expensive. And now you are in a market where the framework has all shifted. Everything's been upmarket. People are willing to pay more. They would never pay that much for a bourbon. If you ask someone to pay $30 for a bourbon 20 years ago, they'd just laugh. You know? <laughs> so I was like, you have this product that's made you know, very well. You've got, these, like, great, you've got this great liquid, but it's now been positioned. People know it as something that costs this much. How do you break out of that? People are willing to pay, and you've got a liquid that is of that quality of other brands being sold for that much. And so you're seeing them break out the brand, and with the 1920 and the Prohibition and some of these these breakouts. I mean, I wouldn't call that cynical. They're a company um, that wants to make money selling a product, um, and they still have very affordable lines of that brand. So 
And, and, and their product extensions are also, I think, worth it. I mean, they, the 1920s, it's really good. I mean, it's, yeah. you pay a little more and you get something that's a little better. Sure. Um, so, so other than sort of the obvious sort of threats from the things that we don't know, what threats can you see to the industry? What, what are the threats? What's the thing that keeps you awake at night saying, tomorrow there might be no bourbon? That's not, <laughs> that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem I have, and I'm a Kentuckian, so I've, you know, I, that's where we start, is that right now, Kentucky bourbon is one word, Okay. 1,600 startups in the last four years. Yeah. 50 of them are in Kentucky. Every one of them trying to create the next Woodford or Makers. The odds, just statistically, that we will lose that, that monopoly uh, concerns me as a Kentuckian, not so much as, as a uh, principal in Makers Mark. But, uh, I mean, we've got something we've never had before in this state. We've got a signature industry that every state in the country would die to have, and we have regulations and laws that were designed by the Baptist and the Women's Christian Temperance Union to hold us down. And, and it's been a slow trek to get them changed. And I don't want to get into the taxation issue, but we are taxed. Your bourbon is taxed, which makes it hard for entrepreneurs to start here when they could start in Indiana or Tennessee. Or so. And Tennessee is recruiting uh, distillery investments and using Kentucky as the reason why not to be here. And it's, it's all laws and regulations. So it's, it's all of that that bothers me. It's one of those things that's going to creep away from you and you're going to wake up in 10 years and it's going to be gone. And we say, where did it go? I, I agree. You know, uh, Kentucky's legislature really needs to do something to make it more friendly to the industry as a whole. Uh, you know, there's no, you know, one of the things I always talk about when, when the settlers first came into uh, um, the, the West, there wasn't a sign in the middle of the Ohio River saying, if you have a still, settle on the South Bank. <laughs> uh, you know, you can make good bourbon just across the river in Ohio or Indiana or Illinois. And traditionally, there was a lot of good bourbon being made in those states. Uh, still is. You know, the MGP distillery makes some good bourbon just across there. As a matter of fact, I was telling them, joking with one of the executives there, saying that they ought to start advertising themselves as being part of a Hoosier-occupied northern Kentucky. <laughs> but... Um, yeah. So, you know, Kentucky really, sh the, the politicians should be worried, you know, because if, you know, Kentucky loses this reputation, then, uh, you know, we're not going to be the Napa Valley of bourbon. Well, I mean, nothing struck me more than when I began to research the, the bourbon industry uh, than the following, that the, Na the state, the official state drink of Kentucky is... Milk. 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 <laughs> uh, that might be a big place to begin and, and, and recognize the importance of But Louisville of does have an official cocktail, which makes me very proud well, to live here. No, fair the old fashioned. The old fashioned, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't contain any milk. No, uh, none. Which is good. Because I'm lactose intolerant, I can't go there. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Napa Valley. Uh, last year, revenue 
directly from land tourism, $2.4 billion, one county in California. 360 wineries in one county. And uh, that county government protects those 360 wineries from Sacramento, the state government. I mean, it's, it's a big part of their livelihood up there. And their livelihood, they live a pretty good life, everybody in the county, because of that wine tourism. And the Bourbon Trail, it, it won't be exactly like Sonoma or Napa, but it has the chance, since we all get along so well and since we're all so dedicated to make it the best experience in the whiskey industry, it has a, a, a chance to compete at that level as far as bringing tourists and uh, butts to beds and, and revenue to the state of Kentucky, and you don't have to build these people's schools because 90% of our visitors are from out of state. They go home after they spend a lot of money. <laughs> and so it, it's all intertwined. Uh, it has to be the only bourbon trail. People have to keep coming. I mean, our little place had 26,000 visitors last month, and they spent an average in GPS our little gift shop. GPS won't even get you there, so that's impressive. <laughs> oh, you're on, there's no center line in the road. <laughs> and the average, average spend is $80 a visitor, and that counts little children and old people and all. Oh, that's impressive. Wow. So, so you, you've mentioned a few times, particularly Bill, that um, there are opportunities out there for, for U of L students. You mentioned them in marketing and all these kind of things. Um, you know, when you were the, the head of a company and, and, and what you've heard from your connections for the rest of the panel, um, you know, what do employers value in, in an employee in the industry and what skills can, can we as a university here give our students to prepare them for a career in the industry and are we doing enough? Well, I, you know, I hate to, I don't want to dominate this, but I'll tell you what I've learned, because I'm an engineer, and I think, and I think that's the most important, and I'm just wrong as I can be. Uh, Mike needs to comment on this for sure. <laughs> but as, as marketing has turned from mass marketing in mass media to personalized selling, and the use of the facilities, the distilleries, and not just distilleries, but ambassadors, clearly the number one skill set that all of us are looking for is the, is the mature interpersonal skills. And it's not close, it's, it's gotta be first. So if you, wanna, if you wanna spend a year really finding if, if you like the industry, become a tour guide, become an ambassador, and in that time, uh, if you show promise, the distilleries will grab you and, and move you where you're interested in going. But that's, I mean, that's because that's a skill set that works. Even our quality control people, engineers, they interface with, with these 180,000 customers that we have coming to the distillery every year. You got to be able to do it. It's a people business. It is a people business. They're all business. people businesses. Well, we got that from y'all in Ireland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what do you think? Did, did U of L prepare you for a career as a bourbon historian? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> well, that's called a qualified. Well, well I, I like to tell people at the time, you know, I, I was the luckiest student to come out of the University of Louisville's history department <laughs> because I uh, was actually working on a degree in medieval history with a secondary field in public history. Um, 
studying under Dr. Brockwell and Carrie Spears in the history department and uh, Bill Morrison at the archives. And Nick Morgan from what was then United Distillers, now Diageo, called and said that they were going to put together an archive out at the old uh, Fitzgerald Distillery. And it would be, you know, six weeks during the summer, 35 hours a week and $9 an hour. And I didn't have classes that summer, and I said, sure, I'll do that. And, you know, and it turned into a uh, full-time job. Up until then, United Distillers uh, uh, decided to sell all their bourbon brands and uh, uh, close the archives. <laughs> uh, never, no one ever uh, said that Diageo was the uh, smartest company in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like you succeeded in spite of, of, of your choice right. of medieval but, but, and public history. Well, but, you know, well, the education I got here at UofL definitely served me well. Are you free to teach a class next semester? <laughs> Uh, thank you. No, uh, Susan and Mike both came to visit my classes this semester, and Reed is visiting tomorrow. So Excellent. thanks to everybody who came to my class just, this semester. Just a, a little word on education. Sure. That a good education fits you for nothing and prepares you for everything. So don't feel like you have to be narrowed into some small. I have degrees oh, I in, in zoology that. and music, and um, it served me well as a journalist and as a urban <laughs> expert. So I could tell uh, you why, but it would take a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so thankfully, I get to continue this conversation over dinner tonight uh, with, with our panelists. Um, what bourbon will you order tonight? And what bourbon should I order tonight? Assuming they've run out of Maker's Mark. <laughs> I was going to say, is Bill coming with us tonight? Bill is coming with us ah, tonight, I hope. Well, and I'm before you all ask, ordering. you're not all invited. I've been prejudiced. <laughs> Mike, what are you going to order? What should I order? You know, I, I'm... Have really uh, a very simple taste in bourbon. I, I, I would probably order, you know, uh, I like the six year old Heaven Hill bottled and bond. Huh? I like the old Forester signature, you know. Uh, I'd probably order one of those, tell you the order or the other. If my grandfather was here, he would say, God bless your thrift. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what he would say. Hey, but, but I guarantee you, he wouldn't be disappointed with either one of them. No, there you go. So what, what am I, what, I, what do I got to order? Which like I said, whichever, whichever okay. one I don't order, I'd tell you to All order right, the other. All right, you can share? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bill, if you were forced to drink someone else's bourbon. <laughs> I drank a lot of milk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it all. I, I, I said you, you were a friend of the bourbon I'll, industry. I'll bet you I've got more <laughs> bottles of everybody's whiskey at my house than, than everybody ever put together. Because I host all the political events we do, so i got to have them. <laughs> Keep everybody sweet. Yeah, that was the thing. Growing up in Louisville, it depended which bourbon you put out is who was coming who to was dinner. Coming. Right. right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's like the old joke about the uh, uh, politician that would come into the Pendennis Club, and uh, he would walk in and uh, uh, walk up to the bartender and say, "Give me the usual." And the bartender would look around and see which distiller was in the uh, <laughs> in, in there, and he would pour that shot. Well, one day he walks in there and says, give me the usual, and the bartender pours him a gin and tonic, and before he can complain <laughs> anything, he pulls the guy over and says, they're all here. <laughs> Smart bartender. Uh, so, so Bill's not going to, Bill's going to give us a diplomatic answer, right? Is that, is that the... No, I thought Mike was going to give, the, he just, he raved, he was over in England, and he raved about these uh, these bourbon lovers wanting to come to Kentucky to, to to do their own private select. 
Uh, John Verney's six. had his, uh, he has a, uh, they did a barrel. Yeah. So that would be a good choice. Makers 46. Yeah, yeah he did it. Back. I didn't do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you heard it from the, the horse's yeah. mouth, right? There you go. Susan, what about you? I may take the uh, diplomatic way out and have a martini, actually. Huh. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, I Can think someone the, cut her payment? <laughs> I think the, the, the private selection is a great idea. In fact, I would say that's a wonderful choice. Anytime you go in a restaurant or a bar and you see that they have a private barrel selection, that they've gone to the distillery, you're going to get something absolutely unique. And so I often look for that. So, so if we have a private barrel tonight, that would be a great they thing do. to get. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And Reed's last with notes. Hardest question. It shouldn't be the hardest question. Yeah, you get asked this question, and, and people sometimes you know, look at you, you've written a book or whatever, and, and you're like, they expect some secret to be unlocked, like you know, going to a mountaintop <laughs> and there's some wise and old, and he'll say something, and and and, and I, I just feel like I'm just terribly disappointing to everyone. And even when they come to my house and they see just a lot of pretty, like, normal, easy to find, brand new, like Mike. My mm -hmm. my taste is pretty. It's pretty. You know, that's what I. The bourbons that kind of got me into bourbon were the old granddads and you know Four Roses. Small batch, not even single barrel. I was like, I kind of like the, the cheaper one better. <laughs> you know, it's like, so it'll be something that uh, is right down the middle. Four, four Roses Yellow Label's the, uh, the best 80 proof product out right, there. Right, ex exactly. And like, that's the thing that I like about, you know, when you look at bourbon as a very distinctive American product, kind of a symbol of America, what is also kind of great about it is that you can get really great value out of it. And you can get a lot of like really, really special products easily, you know, distributed well, and for not a lot of money. So there's kind of an ideal there that I think is kind of nice too. So you're kind of saying I should just order Jameson's and be done with it? Oh, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so look, with that, I think we can wrap up this conversation. I want to turn to our audience for, for questions. And, and I want to reiterate that the Schnatter Center is the sponsor of this event, and, it, and it's focused on encouraging entrepreneurship and the ideas of free enterprise for our students. So I really want to invite only students to ask questions. And there's microphones set up uh, up here for anyone who wants to ask our panelists a question, and uh, we'll have a few minutes for that. So give people a time to shuffle out. Any questions? Can I have a job? <laughs> yeah. Is there someone at the mic? Yeah. Sorry, I missed you. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Nick Walker. Uh, I was wondering if you know, oh. I know a lot of people, uh, uh, some people do uh, home distilling, and uh, I know that is uh, kind of illegal, you know, illegal, so like what? It's what, very illegal, actually. What kind of, uh, kind of illegal? <laughs> what kind of uh, It's like being a little or, dead, you know. <laughs> so like what kind of permit or... Uh, there's nothing like that you can do for, so what steps do you take to start your own, you know? You buy all the licenses and the permits. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it's a highly regulated industry. There's a lot of permits and things to, do, to go through. Uh, but there's a good reason for that, too, because if you don't know what you're doing, you can kill yourself or somebody else with it. Uh, <laughs> not, only, it not only in the, you know, a, a still exploding, but you can make a, you know, if you look during Prohibition, 
a lot of people were doing a lot of home distilling. A lot of people were also going blind or dying from drinking bad alcohol because they didn't know how to make the cuts right. I'll tell you that my, uh, my day job until recently, I was a biology professor, entomologist. One of the fractions that comes off the still is a chemical called ethyl acetate. It's what I used in my insect traps to kill bugs. Okay. <laughs> so if you can leave it in there by mistake, it's bad. And there, and there was an incident, I know, in, in Kentucky earlier this year with an explosion where, where someone died. Oh, yeah. So it's definitely something to be very, very careful. So don't do it. Yeah, just, just don't, don't do it. Make, make oh, your yeah, beer at home, home brewing. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to distill at home, go to Moonshine University and learn how to do it right. Yeah. Have we got another question? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Hey, my name's Robert Johnstone. Uh, first off, thanks for coming and doing this for us tonight. It's pretty interesting hearing your perspective on it. Uh, my question is, is you know, looking out there, Reed, I see your book. It's definitely something I'm going to pick up and read. Is there any other literature that you are... Any, any of you guys suggest looking My into? four books that are sitting out there. <laughs> the other, oh, there's more books. I was, was going to cover you on that. Mike, Thank you, Bill. I quickly made my way to the door. He had the best placement. Mike, Mike Veach's Mike book. Um, yeah. My friend Fred uh, Minnick. Unfortunately, has I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be out there signing books because I've got tickets to John Cleese at seven o'clock. <laughs> All right, I'll sign them for you. And, <laughs> we want to see your silly walk as you go out. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Fred Minnick's books are great. Uh, my friend Clay Risen's books are great for guide. There are a lot of books out there. Um, anything particular, other than just bourbon history or history, you know? and I guess just insider tips for trying to, you know, make your name you, in bourbon. You, you can read my blog, bourbonbeach.com. What's the blog called? Just Google bourbon books and you will get a really good... Yeah. You can also listen to the Bourbon Pursuit podcast. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And once again, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, have we any more questions? One more? Okay. All right, we'll take one more. Last question. My name is Kat Hobleib. Um, I just want to ask, um, with the use of computerized technology becoming more and more common in distilleries today, do you think that it is cheating the system to your more traditional historical way of producing bourbon? No. So no, <laughs> I would put it this way. If a heart surgeon were to use a computer to do his job better or her job better, no one would have a problem with that. You know, it's a tool that can be used to... Or abused. ...be more specific. So... Right. Anything you can use to make the product good or more interesting. Right. You still got to know what to do. You know, the computer is only as good as what you put into it. You know, yeah. so you still have to know your stuff in order to use those tools right. And you may, may have mass spectrometers in the lab saying, here's a profile of what's in this whiskey, but you also have the tasting panel of human palates who are guaranteeing the quality it's of certainly, what's coming out. It's certainly not romantic, and knowing that advertises their computers. You know, that, that, that's a whole different thing. But it's a tool, not a shortcut, right? So it, it absolutely is a benefit. All right, so now Thank we're, you. we're now competing with the pizza at the back of the oh, room. Oh, Please, everybody, oh. go get a slice and a big round of applause for our... Uh, <laughs>